Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Genesis 3, 13 through 15. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your precious word. It explains life, Lord. It explains who we are, who you are, and why we're in the situation we're in in this world, Lord. I thank you that uh, you give us your precious word to lead and guide us and direct us and give us understanding. And I pray now, Lord, as we begin this series, that you would open up our hearts to receive from you, Lord. It really doesn't matter what I have to say, but I pray that during this last week you would have spoken to your people through your precious written word and that today you would again speak through your word in such a way that your name is exalted. And I pray that the seed that you planted would bear fruit in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am getting reports that people are trying to read through the verses that we had for the week. I had a couple extra, and some of those chapters were long, but uh, congratulations. I encourage you to do it again this week if you can, and you can focus on Exodus chapter 12 if you're looking for a focus. That's next week's sermon. Well, we're getting into Genesis, and Moses is the author, the human author of Genesis. This is the first of five of the books that uh, Moses authored, the first five in the Bible called the Pentateuch. And in Greek, the word Genesis means origin, source, or beginning. You're going to find that some of these uh, titles to the books also describe what that book is about. And so we see that this is about origins. Now, To begin with, we need to say this, that God always has been and always will be. And because of that, he is the author of all origins. He is the one who who created everything. Take a look at Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So God is the author of all origins because he always was and always will be. And Genesis records the beginning of origins. When we look at this, we'll see that it records the beginning of time. It records the beginning of what we would know as our material universe. God created it, spoke it out of nothing. doesn't matter what the world says. God created all that we see, and that's just a fact. We see here the origin of the human race where God created two genders, male and female. Nothing in between, no combination, male and female. And so we rest in God's word. We see that in this book we find the origin of marriage. We find the origin of family. As we continue looking through this book, we find the the beginning of civilization and the beginning, the birth of nations, 
in particular the nation of Israel we see in Genesis being birthed or formed. We see in Genesis the beginning of occupations. There were people that were construction guys that built, and there were poets, and there were uh, uh, all kinds of musicians. And so we see that in the book of Genesis, that there were jobs, that people had certain skills that they were good at, and that they were used for the society around them. We see the origin of sin. We see the uh, origin, the beginning of judgment. God, a holy God, a loving God, judges sin. And we see blood sacrifices. We see the origin of all this stuff. We think, well, boy, that's a, a lot. I just scratched the surface. So go back and start looking and reading, and you can start seeing all these things that we find the beginnings of in the book of Genesis. Uh, when we look at Genesis, it's primarily broken into two large sections. The first 11 chapters, 1 through 11, are about a 2,000-year time span. So when you get to that in the beginning God to the end of chapter 11, it's about 2,000 years. And those chapters primarily describe events. In other words, we have the creation of the world, we have the fall of man, we have the flood, we have the Tower of Babel. Those are all within those first 11 chapters. And then from chapter 12 through 50, the end of the book of Genesis, that's about 300 years of time, earthly time. And that the focus there is mostly on people. We see that uh, God calls this pagan Abram and makes a promise to him. The Abrahamic covenant is what we know it as, that God would, uh, would just bless this guy because of his grace and his mercy and he would, there would be a mighty nation that would come from him that would be God's people. Uh, we see Isaac, Abram's son. And then we go on and we see Jacob, or what we know now as Israel was his name. God changed his name. And Joseph. So that's the, the ending of, of, of Genesis. And in Genesis, we see what we call a type of Jesus. What is a type? We're going to see this over and over and over again in the Old Testament. A type is this. It is a historical fact that illustrates a spiritual truth. So there's going to be parallels. There's going to be things in the Old Testament that God was using to point to Christ or point to the gospel. And it's throughout the Old Testament over and over again. And it's, it's, it's when we look at Genesis, it happens all over the place. But I'm just going to touch on a few. First of all, Adam. Adam, if you go to Romans chapter 5, verses 14 through 17, it, says, it talks about Jesus being the second Adam. Adam was the beginning of the... the human beings. Well, Christ is, is the author of Christians being born again. And we see the, the, so many parallels there. We see Christ in this seed of the woman. That's Jesus he's talking about. We see Jesus in Abel's offering. We see Jesus in the ark. What was happening? God's judgment was coming upon the earth for sin. And God provided a way, the ark, to where they would be delivered from that judgment. So we see a picture of Christ even in the ark. We go on and we look and we see um, a picture of Jesus in the offering of Isaac in chapter 22 of Genesis. And, it, and, and the parallels are incredible. Just a one, uh, one small parallel. The fact that Isaac carried the sticks that he was going to be offered on up the hill. Jesus carried the cross up the hill. So you look at that and all the parallels that are there, a picture of Christ and the Father providing. 
Again, Jacob's ladder. And then when we get to Joseph, some scholars believe there are possibly as many as 130 parallels between the life of Joseph and the life of Christ. His brothers rejected him. We read that in the New Testament, and it goes on and on and on and on. And so we see all these types and shadows. You probably could name more. There's 50 chapters there, so I'm sure you could. But we see Christ and we see the gospel over and over and over again in Genesis. Genesis is interesting because it begins with God in the beginning. But do you know how it ends? Those of you that have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 50, the last verse. Tell me how Genesis ends. Was it 26, 28, something like that? Genesis begins with God and ends how? Joseph died. It ends in a coffin. Genesis begins with God and it ends in a coffin. And what we see is this. That's because of the consequences of Genesis chapter 3. That's what we see here. It's unbelievable because what we find in Genesis chapter 3 is the record of sin, of evil, entering into our natural world. And Genesis chapter 3 answers this huge question that has so many branch questions. Why is the world the way it is today? Genesis chapter 3. Why do people lie and steal? Genesis chapter 3. Why do people hurt others and use and abuse others? Genesis chapter 3. Why is there cancer and sickness in the world? Genesis chapter 3. We live in a fallen world. And all the consequences that happen with it. Say, why? Why, why, do people, why are people like this? Why am I like this? What's, you know, what's going on? Genesis chapter 3. Sin. Sin entered the world. And so we see the big answer to the question why. And the questions are usually when we say why about the pain and the sorrow and the hurt and the chaos in the world around us and in our own personal lives. Genesis chapter 3 is by far the saddest event ever in the history of man. And the dialogue that we find in this chapter is the most disastrous dialogue we've ever read because of what happened with the deception. It's just unbelievable. And what we're going to find is this. I, I went through in, uh, I preached through Genesis, I think it started in 2015, and I realized, I looked back and I saw that I preached seven messages on chapter three of Genesis. If you want those notes, you can talk to Jody and she'll get, send them to you. But I, I preached seven different messages on that chapter. And one of the things we're going to talk about today, and this is going to be kind of the application point because I wanted to lay down some foundation, but also an application point, and it's this. You're going to see how the enemy tempts us to sin against God the same way he did all the way back then. The enemy's plan is still the same. He does it, and it's unbelievable how he continues to use this pattern because it's successful. Let's take a look at God's word, Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. I wanted to show you, first of all, what God actually said, and then what Eve said God said. 
The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you will, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And in Genesis 3, 1 through 6, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So he lies, a little bit of a lie there. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God never said that. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, interesting, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And Satan still uses that same pattern today. What happened here? First of all, you'll notice that Satan is, is a neutral observer. He's a believer in God. He doesn't deny there's a God. He says, yeah, there's a God. Sure. But what he does is he mocks God's authority. He mocks God's authority. His question subtly implies that God's word is subject to our judgment. He didn't really say that, did he? Well, what do you think about that? Well, I know God calls that sin, but that was a long time ago. You know, we've got so much more enlightenment now. Should God have the authority to say what is sin and what is not sin? What an arrogant God. He subtly implies that God's commands are subject to our judgment. There's far more than two genders. And what matter does it make? Be what you want to be. You weren't made in the image of God. And then we see the first and ultimate lie. There is no punishment for sin. Surely you will not die. You see, God put that there as a deterrent for sin that would hurt us. It's kind of like when I think of parents saying, listen, you tell your children, if you disobey, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to correct you in whatever manner that might be. Why do you do that? Because you just want to cause problems for your kid or yourself? No. You love your child. You don't want them to be hurt by what's, what they think is okay. And so you use that as a deterrent, and that's exactly what God did. And so what Satan does is he removes that. He says, there's not going to be any punishment for this. I mean, come on, really, seriously. God is a God of love. God is a God of love. It can't be a life or death thing for such a trivial matter. Eating a fruit? Still does that today, doesn't he? God's a God of love. Certainly there won't be consequences to if you choose to walk in sin. Besides, you're a Christian. He cuts you more slack. All these whispers in our ear of the enemy. No, that, 
doesn't make any difference. It's a small thing. It's trivial. It's really not that big of a deal. Consequences won't be there. Listen, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's still this principle called sowing and reaping, and it happens to you too. Because you know why? God loves you. And God disciplines those he loves. So when we choose to walk in sin, God will lovingly discipline us. It's not out of anger. He's doing it out of love. But see, the enemy wants us to say there will be no consequences. Or if you're maybe you're in the middle of a situation where you're reaping the consequences of sin that you made, and you go, well, this seems unfair. You know what? Because you believed in a lie from the enemy, saying, guess what? Certainly it wasn't that big of a deal. Shouldn't be real big consequences to it. So you see this pattern that the enemy continues to use throughout history. He's a God of love. Certainly, this is so trivial, couldn't matter to him. And Satan's initial approach is to deceive, not deny. Oh, no, there's a God. There's a God. I wonder which God it is. That's a great lie today, isn't it? Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm working with someone now who says, well, there, I believe there's a God. But which God, I'm not sure. And I think, man, you just believe in that lie all the way back. You see... He wants to sow seeds of doubt immediately, not disobedience. If God's so good, why are you going through this? Why do you struggle with this? I mean, if, if God is good. And this is someone that you want to submit your whole life to? Doubt, sowing those seeds of doubt. Very cautiously, carefully, consistently, bringing these seeds of doubt until he moves you to disobedience. That's the pattern the enemy has in your life and in my life. It's amazing how consistent it is. What Satan did was this. He accused God of keeping Eve from happiness and her full potential. You could be like God. Knowing good for me, wisdom. Don't we hear that today? That traditional faith that you have, that's keeping you from your potential as a human being. You need to just break those bonds. Become all that you can be. And God is just keeping you from meeting that. God is keeping you from happiness. And you notice what he did to sow seeds of doubt in Eve's heart. He caused her to focus on God's prohibition, what he was prohibiting, rather than his provision. Isn't that the way the devil plays now still? Well, you know, they got all that stuff. You don't have that. Look what God's keeping from you. You want to serve this God? I don't know how big the garden was. I'll throw it out there. At least tens of thousands of trees. Bearing beautiful fruit. One tree. Don't eat from that. One tree. Have all the rest. God's saying, I made this beautiful garden for you. I got oranges. I got pears. I got apples. Whatever you want. 
It's all yours. Just don't of this one tree. And Eve has got her eyes on that one tree. See, God said, no. We forget all the blessings of the Lord. We just see what we don't have. Because that's the plan of the enemy, to become discontent with what we have by showing us what we don't have and what we think we should have, which calls into question God's goodness. And that's how the enemy fights, all the time. All the time. I was listening to a country song yesterday called Rich Man, I think, or something like that. And he was talking about how he didn't have a lot of money, he didn't have anything, but I'm a rich man because he had everything he needed. He had his faith and he had his family. And he had a roof over his head. And he was just saying how rich he was. See, the enemy gets his focus on what we don't have. What we don't have. And that's his plan. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know this. Do not believe this lie that holiness keeps you from happiness. Don't believe that lie. Holiness is happiness. It is joy. It is peace. And when you walk outside of holiness to pursue your happiness in something other than Christ and the gospel, you're going to find out what true tragedy is. There's a season where it feels great. I mean, Moses, he even talks about that. Moses bypassed a season of, joy, of pleasure. Sin's pleasurable. I mean, if it wasn't, they'd have, it'd have no takers. But the problem is, is that it costs you. And so God says, you know what? Your true happiness is pursuing Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Pursuing holiness. That's where joy comes from. That's where peace comes from. So don't believe the enemy's lies that true joy comes from going contrary to God's word, from living in sin or pursuing sin. That's a lie. And he'll always point to what you don't have and you think you should have. It's amazing how he does that. Here's what Satan did. Satan encouraged Eve to mistrust God's goodness. If he's such a good God, why is he withholding this tree from you? Why is he doing that? You, you call him a good God? Why is he withholding this new job? Why is he withholding this? Why is he withholding that? Satan encouraged Eve to mistrust God's character. God just wants to be the only wise one. That's why. He's this self-centered, egotistical God sitting in heaven. And you want to serve him? He's keeping you from wisdom. The pattern doesn't change. Satan encouraged Eve to mistrust God's motives. He wants it all for himself. And he caused Eve to believe that there were no consequences for sin. Just do it. Surely you're not going to die. And he's a loving God, right? And this is so small. You see, the pursuit of holiness is something that we should delight in. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in order to do that. But that's where our joy will be. I'm telling you right now. And when we pursue Christ and we delight in being like him, then we will find what we're looking for, that joy and that peace that the world is random, frantically chasing after and all these foolish things. I want to say this, that Eve sinned before she ate the fruit. 
how can you say that? Here's why. It was the moment that she believed that God was flawed, that God was corrupt, that God didn't have her best in mind, that he withheld good from her. That's when she started to sin. You see, the eating of the fruit was the expression, not the essence or the source of the sin. Because it started in the thought, God's not good. God's keeping something from me. And it went from there. The sin was that more than anything. Questioning God's goodness and kindness and his motives and his character. And that's how sin works. It starts in our mind, doesn't it? James talks about that. Starts in a thought. That's why the enemy just throws that thought in there, plants doubt, throws a thought in there. And before you know it, you keep meditating on it. Eve should have split. She should have got out of there. That's what she should have done. She didn't. She decided she's going to be brilliant and, and have, a, have an argument with Satan. And she stayed there, and he just kept planting more and more doubt in her mind. And then she started thinking, well, you know what? Yeah, maybe that is true. It moves to your heart. Yeah, you know what? Yeah, God is kind of. And then it moves into an action. It's not a sin to be tempted. Don't get me wrong, because the scripture says that. But Eve's heart was turned against God. And she did what she did because of that. And what happened is there was spiritual, physical, and eternal death that happened at that very moment that she ate and disobeyed God. It's a culmination of that sin. Take a look at God's word again. Genesis 3, 17 through 19. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your, your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There it is, death mandated. Romans chapter 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And finally, Ecclesiastes 12, 7. The dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Spiritual death had already occurred. And now what happened was that physical death is mandated. Adam, you began as dirt. You're going to work your whole life in the dirt. And then you're going to return to the dirt. There you go, guys. That's how it all ends. With this thing. Why? Because that's what God's word says. <laughs> so we see that physical death was a consequence of sin. I don't know what would have happened if they didn't sin. My assumption is they never would have died. They would have been in this sweet fellowship with God. But do you realize how much it is the kindness and the grace of God that he mandated death? What? Would you want to live in this fallen, messed up world for eternity? I don't want to live in a broken world like this. 
think of God's kindness by kicking them out of the garden. See, most people think God was this spiteful God that was mad at them because they didn't listen to them, and he kicked them out of the garden. It was God's kindness and love that kicked them out of the garden. Because if they ate from the tree of life, God made a promise. They'd probably live forever. He didn't want to do that. He said, listen, I've got something better. My relationship with, it, with these people is fractured, is broken, and I want to bring it back to before the fall. So part of my plan is that they're going to leave this garden. They're not going to live forever now here on this world, fallen and broken. I'm going to bring death as a mercy, as a kindness. You see that? The grace of God, even there. I don't want to live down here for eternity with all this messed up stuff. So we see God's kindness and grace even there. Somebody's partying. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> see, God knows the timing is for, out of the mouth of babes, right? <laughs> you can't plan this stuff. Only the Holy Spirit can, right? So what do Adam and Eve do? The first attempt at works righteousness. That's what Adam and Eve did. They realized that they were guilty and that they broke God's law. And so what they did was they took matters into their own hands and they covered themselves. And it was inadequate. It was inadequate because it didn't deal with the issue. And so what happens is, is that God took matters into his own hands. You see the gospel, the beauty of the gospel being pictured in all these things here? Adam and Eve tried in their own efforts to hide their guilt and their shame and they couldn't do it. And so God stepped in and provided a way to cover their guilt and their shame. Take a look at God's word. Genesis chapter 3. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Can you imagine that? I mean, we just read those couple words. I can't even imagine that. You're chilling in the garden that God made, and you hear God walking through the garden? What? Anyway, I just, God's word amazes me. It really does. Anyway, and uh, the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? It's not because God didn't know where he was. He's God. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said... Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And then when you move on past the, you look to verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God would have been just to fulfill what he had said, that surely the day that you eat of the tree you will die, he could have done that. But we see his grace and his mercy in that he didn't do that. He would have been just to, to bring this judgment because they disobeyed him. But instead, we see God providing for their shame and their guilt a covering, a substitute. Something died in order to cover their shame. So the million-dollar question is this. Who offered the first Animal sacrifice, it was God. Because he covered them with the skin of an animal. 
Adam and Eve didn't do that. There was an animal that was alive, that was sacrificed. I had a beautiful question in between services. The guy asked me this. He said, you ever wonder what kind of animal it was? And he gave me an, he gave me an answer. Now, all speculation. He said, I wonder if it was a lamb. Won't that be cool to find out? Was it? But there was a sacrifice that was made by God to cover the shame of Adam and Eve and their sin. This is the first time in the Bible and in the history of the world what we call substitutionary atonement. An innocent person died for another's sin. Wow, there's the cross, brothers and sisters, right there. You see the glory of God here in this picture of these sinners disobeying their God. And God in his kindness and mercy provided a covering for them. We see God's grace and mercy over and over and over again in Genesis. It's amazing to see God. This is the picture of where we get the animal sacrifices from later in the Old Testament. Some people think, well, what was God? I don't understand this God of yours. He's all into blood and sacrifices, and they they, they just think it's this random thing. They don't understand the holiness of our God. God is serious about talking and saying, listen, be holy as I am holy. And we're imperfect, we're sinners. But what happens is, is that there's a cost, there's a judgment to sin, and because of God's holiness, and he provides a way. And in the Old Testament, it was a picture of the Old Testament sacrifices, the different offerings that were there. They were pointing to someone. They were pointing to Jesus. So, you know, it's not random. This is who God is, and he takes sin seriously, and we need to as well. And then we see God make a promise. It's, it's, it's wonderful. It's amazing. Because what did Satan do? Satan brought sin through Eve, right? So now God is going to say, guess what? I'm going to restore the relationship that I had with Adam and Eve prior to the fall. I'm going to do it through her. And not only that, I'm going to provide salvation through Eve's line. And in the process, I'm going to crush you, Satan. Yeah, baby. I love that. He says, you know what? I'm going to take what you meant to d- for destruction and I'm going to turn it around. The very woman that you used, through her line, the Savior's coming. This is, this, this is a prophecy of the coming of a Redeemer who would make right the relationship between God and man. And he's going to bring it through her line. It's going to be through her and I'm going to destroy the work that you just did. I'm going to destroy it and I'm going to redeem a people to myself through her line. I'm going to crush you in the process. Wow. Take a look at God's word. Genesis 3, 14. I will put enmity, enmity, which is divinely established hostility, antagonism, war, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Big difference. Hebrews 2, 14 through 16. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through the death, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And First John 3, 8, the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That is saying the same thing that it says in Genesis 3. And you shall bruise his heel. You see, this section of scripture, Isaiah 53, 5, is not about physical healing. It's about salvation. That's the primary purpose for that verse. It's about salvation. It's reiterating what was said in Genesis chapter 3. You're going to bruise his heel, and he's going to bruise your head. Wow, that's incredible. There's a first prophecy in the word of God. There's a redeemer that's coming. Didn't tell us his name. We know his name. Name is Jesus. And this is what is considered the first preaching of the gospel in the Bible. It's called Proto-Evangelum. The first preaching of the gospel. It's talking about the cross here. We see an example later on after this is said. But we see the cross here saying, you know what? He's going to bruise. You're going to bruise his heel. It's going to be damaged, temporary. But he's going to bruise your head. And take you out. He's going to provide salvation for God's people. Wow, what a savior. Do you realize that the, just the intricacies of the first three chapters and all that they involve? And just chapter three and the promises of grace and mercy and the love of God and the gospel. It's amazing. The most tragic chapter in the entire scripture ends with an introduction to the glorious, hope-filled gospel. That's our God. That's our God. The worst chapter in human history. The, 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 the most unbelievable things that happened. And it ends with God making a promise. The mess you just got us in, there's a solution. And the solution is the gospel. And that's true today still. I don't know the mess you're in. I really don't. I don't know if it's because of your own doing and walking into sin or others because innocent do suffer. Maybe it's just being in a fallen world. I don't really know. I don't know if you're struggling with an addiction or, or uh, there's, there's physical health or what. I don't know what it is. I know it's part of the problem of living in a fallen world and I think and I believe with all my heart that the solution is the same today as it was back then. It's the gospel. It's about Jesus. And he will sustain us to make it through whatever we're going through. He will love us enough to discipline us. He will do all that he will do to exalt his name. And it is what is the best for us, even when it's sometimes hard. So whatever mess you're in, whatever struggle you're facing right now, I want you to know that the solution is the gospel. It's delighting in Jesus. It's pursuing him and putting our hope in him. And not in this world to make us happy or to find an answer to the problem. It's in Jesus. And he will not only be the solution, he will be the power. He will empower us to walk in a way that he calls us.
And that's the glory of this wonderful gospel that we have. It's a work of God, not, our, not ourselves. Then that's what we see in Genesis, that God promises a way out of sin's mess. And it is for his glory and our good. It's called the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we stand in awe of you today to see how things that were right in front of us that we didn't see before, and yet you were showing us the whole time that you had a solution. God, we praise you today, and I ask that whatever struggles people are going through, whatever mess they're in, God, that we would truly believe deep in our heart that the answer is the gospel. Lord, that you would empower us to walk in a way that is holy. Lord, your word calls us to do that. And I pray that we would delight in you. We would desire to walk in holiness, not out of duty, but delight, because we know, God, we know that it is where true happiness is found. So now, Lord, pour out your spirit upon us. Enable us to walk in a way that brings you glory and honor and praise. I pray this in Jesus' beautiful and glorious and powerful name. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and continue to worship.